Our gracious Heavenly Father, the church is the bride of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, he is the church's one foundation, Christ. And we know that your church is built by the preaching and the proclamation of your word publicly and privately with one another in our own lives. We know that that is how our hearts are converted as your word is applied by the Spirit of God and the gospel moves in our hearts so that we are awakened from spiritual death. And we know that as Christians, the way that we grow is by means of your word being applied to our lives as we meditate and reflect upon the truths that we hear. I pray that this morning we would recognize that and that we might respond as eager listeners and reflectors and meditators of your word. And Lord, walk away deliberately and purposefully thinking about ways that we are going to apply these truths to our hearts and lives that we may grow in conformity to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4 is our text for this morning. The title of this morning's message is The Christian's Secret Weapon. The Christian's Secret Weapon. And the Word of God says this, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. The Song of Roland is a fictional poem that tells the epic stories of the great knights of Charlemagne in the early medieval ages. After seven years of fighting in Spain, Charlemagne and his forces are headed back to France, and an opposing army attacks the rear guard of Charlemagne's army. The commander of the rear guard, which is made up of about 20,000 soldiers or so, is a valiant knight by the name of Roland. Oliver is a wise and prudent friend of Roland. And knowing that the rear guard is significantly outnumbered, he, Oliver counsels uh, Roland to, to blow his elephant horn, which is a hunting horn made from a, an elephant tusk that was used to summon troops. If he blows this horn, Charlemagne's main force can come to the rear guard and, and help. However, Roland refuses to do so because of pride, largely. And as a result, Charlemagne's rear guard is ambushed and killed to the man. Toward the end of the massacre, Roland finally does blow his elephant horn. Charlemagne turns back only to find his whole rear guard wiped out in a bloody massacre. And of course, the sad thing is that the devastating massacre could have been avoided if the proud Roland would have blown his mighty weapon, his mighty horn to summon the rest of Charlemagne's army to come and help. What a tragedy, huh? On the battle scene there. But beloved, there's a a greater tragedy for we who are Christians. A greater tragedy that, that we who have access to the God of the universe do not call, we as Christians do not call upon God's name. It's a greater tragedy that Christians... Uh, two who have a, a secret weapon, if you will, by which we can call upon the great general, God himself, to help us. We don't call upon our great general to come to our aid. It's a great tragedy that Christians can stand firm in the Christian life through prayer, but we don't take advantage of this mighty weapon. And as Paul sits in prison, he reminds these Christians that they, that they need to live in dependence upon the Lord. That they need to be devoted to to prayer. That this is what is normal. The normal practice and routine of every Christian is to be prayerfulness. J.C. Ryle writes this. All the children of God are alike in this respect. From the moment there is any life and reality about their religion, they pray. Just as the first sign of life in an infant when born into the world is the act of breathing, so the first act of men and women when they are born again is praying, end quote. I like what he's saying there. That the normal, natural routine of a, of a Christian should be prayer, dependence upon his heavenly father or her heavenly father. 
See, prayer, beloved, is not an exercise for the spiritually elite, as if some uh, category uh, existed of, of an elite Christians who are the, the, the prayer warriors in the church. Every believer should be a person who prays in secret and corporately. Prayer is part and parcel of what it means to follow Christ. Think about the, the fact that a Christian is, is a person who has been reconciled to God by faith in Christ Jesus. There is a relation, relationship that has been restored. We existed in a broken relationship with God before, but now as we've turned from our sins and put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, now we exist in this relationship with God by faith in Christ. So there's this ongoing relationship now with our Heavenly Father. And in light of that relationship, we should desire to commune with Him and to communicate with Him. So prayer is, a vital, is vital to the Christian who has new life. Vital. And so here in Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4, Paul moves from instructions on the household to the matter of, of prayer. And what we see in verses 2 through 4 is that Paul calls these Colossians to, to the very vital practice of prayer. And as he does so, he highlights, I think, some important elements of what I call a vibrant prayer life. Some important elements of a vibrant prayer life that I want us to examine this morning together. The first element that he highlights here in verse 2 is that Christians are to be devoted to persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. Look at verse 2. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. We understand this word, uh, what being devoted means, right? Um, All of us, as we survey our lives, are devoted to certain things in life. We may be devoted to our jobs. We may be devoted to our education. We may be devoted to our families. We may be devoted to our activities, certain activities in life or priorities in life. And our devotion to these things shows itself in that we direct our resources toward these things. Our, we spend our time and energy. Um, we direct those things toward those areas of life or people that we are devoted to. Well, Paul says in verse 2 that the Christian is to be devoted to prayer. It means to give constant attention to prayer. It means that prayer is to be our, our regular practice. I love the present tense command here. We are to be continually in prayer. I think a good way to put this is is that Christians ought to be uh, those who are characterized by unrelenting persistence in prayer. And I use that purposefully, beloved, because oftentimes our prayers are reactionary. We react to the circumstances of life. We become discouraged about the things that are happening in our life. We become circumstantially driven. Or when relationships are tough, we're driven to prayer and we should be driven to prayer. Whenever we get into trouble or there's an emergency in life, we're driven to prayer. But the problem is, is that prayer is not present when those things are not happening. When we're going through some, from a human perspective, easy times. We show our true colors and that we are not devoted to prayer during those times of calmness, if you will, or peacefulness in our lives. But what Paul is calling for here is, is this proactive commitment to seek the face of God to a mindset of humble dependence and and communion with God. See, we make a lot of excuses. I don't have time to pray, Pastor. I'm very busy. If you really understood how much stuff I have going on in life, um, then you would understand how the demands uh, in my life and my responsibilities keep me from being able to pray. We make many, many excuses. Well, if there was ever a man, beloved who understood in his humanity the limitations of, his, of humanness, if you will, of time, of a busy life, it was our Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't he? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And I want you to see this in the life of our Lord. Just keep your finger there in Colossians 4. Luke chapter 4. Never has there been anyone busier than our Lord Jesus Christ. Never. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 38, he has just healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law who was suffering from a high fever and they asked him to help her and he heals her, of course. 
And look at verse 40 of Luke 4. It says that while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. And notice verse 41. Demons were also coming out of many shouting, you are the son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. Now notice He's healing Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Then while the sun is setting, uh, he is spending the whole day with those who are sick in verse 40 with various diseases and even uh, having personal involvement with each of them at the end of verse 40. Very busy in his ministry. Demons who were powerful and mighty. Jesus is casting out demons in verse 41. I mean, he is a busy, busy man. And yet, verse 42 says that when day came... Jesus left and went to a secluded place. What do you think he was doing? Seeking the face of his father in prayer, beloved. Seeking the face of his father in prayer. Look at chapter uh, 5 of Luke and verse 15. He has just healed a, a man of leprosy. And in verse 15, he continues to grow in popularity. The news about him was spreading even farther. And large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Notice, there are multitudes after him, pressing upon him. Most of them for the wrong reasons, because they want the gifts, not the giver. They don't understand the fullness of his person and who he is. They're seeking him for the wrong reasons, but he's busy. And you would think if it were one of us, oh man, this is great. I'm growing in popularity. Let's fan this baby. Let's continue to grow my ministry. I'm becoming more popular and famous. But instead, notice what Jesus does in verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. He would go away to seek the face of his father. It didn't matter how much popularity, uh, how he was growing in popularity. It didn't matter how busy he was. He sought the face of his father in prayer. What about doing major critical life decisions, beloved, in his ministry? Like the choosing of the twelve. Those who would be the, the foundation, the apostles of the church. What about during those times? Look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. It says that it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. These, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, are are the foundation of the church, the apostles, Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Major decision, even the 12th, Judas Iscariot, who would be used as an instrument in the hands of God to betray the Savior. Jesus spends the whole night in prayer. When was the last time that you had a major decision in life and you spent the whole night in prayer to God, seeking his face? He was humble and dependent upon his heavenly Father, You can read chapter 9, verse 18. He was praying alone. Chapter 9, verse 28 of Luke. The fact that he was devoted to prayer. After a while, beloved, the disciples catch on to Jesus' remarkable prayer life. And they ask him to teach them how to pray. Look at Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying... In a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, and you know the Lord's prayer, right? Lord, we've been watching you. We've been watching your example. Teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples to pray. They followed his great model And his great example. And notice, when you pray. Not if you pray, but when you pray. Jesus, having modeled prayer, says, you are expected to pray. When you pray, this is how you ought to do it. What about hard times? 
trials in the life of our Lord? What about in the greatest moment of the most powerful attack upon him in the Garden of Gethsemane? What did Jesus do? Did he get his army ready? Did he tell his apostles in the garden to get their swords ready and and ready for battle? Beloved, look at Luke 22. What was our Lord doing and encouraging his disciples to do in the most in the strongest moment when the most powerful attack was ever before him. Luke 22, verse 39. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. Verse 40, when he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow, and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Notice, what was Jesus doing? Seeking the face of his heavenly father. Even in that powerful moment, when he would be betrayed, he was a model to his disciples of sincere, genuine prayer before his father. Beloved, the point is that Jesus, the eternal son of God, in his humanity, wasn't just putting on an act. He lived fully dependent upon his father in the power of the spirit of God. And listen to me. It wasn't just that Jesus sought the face of his father uh, in a a duty driven kind of way because he had to or because he was putting on a facade so that we 2000 years later would read this and say, oh, because he set the example before us, we should pray too. He was genuinely seeking the face of his father. Listen to me, because he loved the relationship with his father. Have you spent time in John 14 through 17 where Jesus utters words that are so beautiful in the, in the upper room to his disciples? Do you, do you see how he speaks about his heavenly father in such words of intimacy and tenderness? He loved his father and even in his humanity, he sought his father's face because he loved them and he wanted to be intimate with him and commune with him. It wasn't just because he had to be loved. Us too. What drives us? What compels us as believers to seek the face of God is that we know that our Heavenly Father has been merciful and gracious to us, right? And we want to seek Him because we want communion with Him and closeness to Him. So we draw near to God that He may draw near to us. So Jesus was a model of persistence in prayer. The early church was persistent in prayer. I want you to see, look at Acts chapter 1. What did the church do right after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1? What were they devoted to? Chapter 1, verse 14, right after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, it says that they went back, the disciples of Christ went back to, I think, the upper room. What were they doing in the upper room as they, as they waited for Pentecost, the arrival of the Spirit of God? Look at verse 14. These all, these disciples, followers of Christ, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to what? To prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers as they awaited the arrival of the Spirit of God at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they were praying, seeking the face of God the Father. Seeking His face. Look at chapter 2 and verse 42. We get the first summary report of how the early church is doing in the book of Acts. And it says in chapter 2 verse 42 that they were devoting themselves to certain practices. They were continually devoting themselves, the early church, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to what? Prayer. And to prayer. See, we often emphasize, beloved, fellowship and we emphasize the preaching and the, and the teaching of the word of God and being in the word. And we should emphasize those things. May those things never diminish. But we don't emphasize prayer enough and elevate it at the same level of the word of God as well, beloved. This is why in Acts chapter 6, 
And the first, with the first deacons, when they were the first deacons were set forth. Do you remember why it was necessary for those deacons to be, devote themselves to, to physical service tasks? It was Acts chapter 6 verse 4, so that the apostles will devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer and the word the apostles were to be devoted to. And over and over again in the book of Acts, we see that the early church was persistent in prayer. Not only personally, but corporately, together, collectively, seeking the face of God in all matters of life. Romans 12.12 says that we ought to be devoted to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? That we should never do anything but pray all day long, every moment, every minute of the day? What he means is that we ought to have this mindset or disposition or attitude of humble, dependent prayer. Pray unceasingly. Be in a spirit of prayer at all times. What about in times of pressures, beloved, of affliction and trials, when you're experiencing anxiety, the anxieties of life that each and every one of us in our humanness experience daily? Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing or stop being anxious. But he doesn't leave us there. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. He hasn't wired us to bear all of the burdens of life on our own beloved as believers. He wants us to come to him to cast our burdens upon the Lord. And what's going to happen when we do that, when we let our requests be made known to God? He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You have worries. You have anxieties. You have struggles. Don't try to bear them on your own, beloved. You weren't wired to do that. Cast them before the Lord. Cast your burdens upon him because he cares for you in prayer. Amen? But pastor, prayer is hard work. I know that the pastors have it all together, right? You guys as elders are deacons. I mean, you guys are leaders. You guys never struggle with prayer, right? Eh, Wrong. Prayer is hard work, beloved. It is a battle. It is a struggle. In fact, turn back to Colossians chapter 4. I want you to see something. Colossians 4 and verse 12. Paul commends Epaphras to the Colossian believers in Colossians 4 verse 12. And notice what he commends him for. He says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. And listen to this. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. That word there, uh, laboring in verse 12, is the word in Greek, agonizomai. Sound familiar? Agonize. Paul says, I commend to you Epaphras. He cares so much for you that he's constantly bringing you before the throne of grace. He says, laboring, agonizing earnestly for you in his prayers. You think prayer is easy? Even Epaphras, a spiritual man who Paul commends to the Colossian believers, a servant of the Lord, agonized in prayer, struggled and wrestled in prayer. Prayer is hard work, beloved. And yet God would never call us to, something, to do something so important if he didn't give us the ability to obey, right? So it is possible to be persistent in prayer. That's the first element of a vibrant prayer life. But secondly, vigilant prayer. Vigilant prayer is the second element that we see here of a vibrant prayer life. He adds in verse 2, this verb here, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. That verb there, keeping alert, has the, has the sense of, of with your eyes wide open, with watchfulness, if you will. Not slumbering. It's the opposite of falling asleep or of slumbering, of taking a passive approach or looking upon this issue of prayer and dependence in a passive or indifferent manner. We remember, and we just read, how Jesus asked his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to to stay alert and stay watchful in prayer in the middle of the night. Why? Because there was impending danger upon their lives. In ancient times, 
A watchman would stand at the highest peak of a city wall or a, or a tower looking out for potential enemies in order to warn his people of, of impending danger. Beloved, in the Christian life, in like manner, the, the Christian is like a vigilant watchman who understands that the enemy can strike at any point in time. The difference is that our weapon is not a sword or a gun, but a more powerful secret weapon called prayer. By which we can call upon our ultimate warrior, God Almighty, to come to our defense. Amen? We can call upon Him. So listen, what the nature of the enemy should compel you and I to vigilant, watchful, alert kind of prayer. The nature of the enemy. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, in the, in, uh, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, be a sober spirit. In other words, be a sober spirit, self-control, clear-headed. Be a sober spirit. Be on the alert, he says. Why? Your adversary... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Notice how he, he, he describes the devil. He is our adversary. He is against us. He is not for us. And he is like a, a lion, a roaring lion who prowls about like a, a seeking someone to devour. Recently, I took my three youngest kids to the L.A. Zoo. And we saw a lot of beautiful animals. A lot of majestic animals, but none more majestic, I can tell you right now, at least at the L.A. Zoo, than lions. Majestic, beautiful creatures within the four walls of the cage, right? I mean, you know what I, know, I, I, I noticed? There was no sign anywhere on that cage that said, don't feed the lions or don't pet the lions. Why? It's common sense. You don't stick your hand in there and pet the lion or feed the lion. He'll tear you to pieces. He's majestic and beautiful to look at within, inside of that cage. But no one wants to be around a lion outside of that cage, right? Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 8 says that the devil, your adversary, wants to butcher you. He is like a roaring lion seeking you to devour you. And in light of that, we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God in that passage. And we do that in prayer, beloved. We have a fierce enemy who desires to harm and kill us and destroy us. We don't cuddle with lions, right? You don't cuddle with a lion. You run from him. See, some of us, Live life, live the Christian life as if it were a, a flower garden. A garden of daisies, if you will. But Paul describes the Christian life in Ephesians 6 as spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Turn to Ephesians 6, just a, few, a couple of pages to your left. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And notice, here's the nature of the struggle. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Notice that word struggle there at the beginning of verse 12. It has this idea of close, face-to-face, -face combat to the death. It was used to describe wrestling matches that were not for the purpose of one winning over the other, but of who dies first. That's the nature of our battle, beloved. And in the midst of that, Paul says, you can stand firm against the schemes of the devil, verse 11. You can stand firm at the end of verse 13. You stand firm, therefore, at the beginning of verse 14. You can stand firm against the wiles of the devil. He says, how? By putting on the armor of God, appropriating the resources as a believer that God has already given to you. Now, growing up, in Sunday school, we always heard about the armor of God, and I love this passage. But oftentimes, what people overlooked was verse 18. He says, on top of the armor of God, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. 
And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. In the flow of, the, of a passage instructing them to put on the spiritual armor of God, he says, don't forget about prayer. Don't forget about prayer. At all times, for all things, for all people, with all alertness, in light of the fact that you have a deadly enemy, seek God in prayer. The battle is spiritual, beloved. It is fierce, close, face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat to the death. We must be vigilant in light of our deadly enemy. C.H. Spurgeon wrote this, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. You feel weak? I feel weak, beloved. You experience weakness and vulnerabilities every single day. I feel the same way too. We're all human beings. Seek the Lord in prayer. Be vigilant and watchful in prayer. Amen? Thirdly, thankful prayer. Thankful prayer is a third element of a vibrant prayer life. Thankful prayer. He adds this little prepositional phrase. He says, with an attitude of thanksgiving. Literally, in thanksgiving. Shouldn't surprise us, thanksgiving and gratitude is a central theme in the book of Colossians. What kinds of things does does Paul, back in Colossians, thank God for? Look at chapter 1 of Colossians and verse 3. Always thankful this man, who was a human being just like us, living in the power of the Spirit of God. He says in Colossians 1, verse 3, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And what does he thank God for? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, what does he pray for and thank God for? He prays and thanks God for their faith and their love and their hope because of the gospel. Why? Because if it wasn't for the Lord, they would still be in spiritual death, beloved. And so Paul thanks God. In fact, he does it again in verse 12. He says, giving thanks to the Father encourages them to be thankful people who are giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And this is the reason why he wants them to be giving thanks to the Father. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When was the last time you spent devoted time in prayer thanking God for what He has done in your life in delivering you from the domain of darkness and transferring you to the kingdom of of His beloved Son? When was the last time that you as a believer prayed for other believers and thanked God and said, Oh Lord, thank you so much for my brother and sister in Christ and for the fact that you've delivered them from darkness. Wow, what a testimony and where they used to be and what they used to be about. Paul thanks God for them. Look at chapter 2 and verse 6. One of the characteristics of being rooted in Christ is a person who is, who is overflowing with gratitude. 2, 6 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude or abounding, gushing out, if you will, with gratitude. You want to know how firmly rooted you are in Christ Jesus? How thankful of a person are you? How full of gratitude are you? And does that lead you to express that in prayer and express that to other people? By the way, when the New Testament speaks about thanksgiving and gratitude, it isn't this passive disposition that we have that doesn't show itself in our faces, that isn't expressed. Gratitude and thanksgiving is this inner uh, satisfaction and contentment in who we are in Christ Jesus as believers that leads, beloved, to a verbal expression of thanksgiving and gratitude that is audibly expressed, that is visibly seen by other people so that they are encouraged as well to be people of gratitude and thanksgiving. 
First Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer, what should characterize you is gratitude, thanksgiving. In fact, one of the, one of the uh, reasons why the wrath of God is manifested in Romans chapter 1 is because of the fact that people do not honor God or give thanks. They are not thankful toward the Lord. Let me ask you this morning, are you a thankful person? You want to take a good litmus test of your maturity in Christ? You want to know just how spiritually minded you really are? Are you a thankful person? Are your prayers characterized by thanksgiving? For yourself, for your family, for the body of Christ, for people in your life? Are your prayers characterized by gratitude to the Lord? See, some of us, beloved, need to repent of our lack of gratitude. We need to repent of our constant grumbling and complaining like the Israelites who were never satisfied, who kept saying, why did you, Moses, lead us out of Egypt? It would be better that we were there in Egypt rather than here in this stinking land eating manna. Many of us have that posture and that disposition, beloved, grumbling and complaining constantly, forever talking about the things that we don't have, forever looking at others and comparing ourselves to other people, forever complaining about the church, forever complaining about our families or our spouses or the things that we didn't have in our upbringing, forever grumbling and complaining. Ultimately, beloved, that is an attack against God who created you and who in His sovereignty has you in the circumstances that He has you. And the materialistic society in which we live breeds that discontentment all the more, right? All the more of the things that we don't have, beloved. Gratitude flows from a heart of contentment. Paul, while writing Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, wrote those books from prison. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, verses 3 to 14, he bursts forth into one sentence of praise to the Lord, sitting in prison on house arrest. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him. He has given us an inheritance. He has sealed us in the spirit and so forth and so forth. He is sitting on house arrest, beloved. How does a man like that, who is limited, the great apostle Paul, the mighty man of the scriptures, burst forth into praise that way? Even in the midst of difficulties, it's because he was a man who knew he deserved nothing but hell were it not for Jesus Christ's merits on his behalf. Contentment. And who we are in Christ and our spiritual blessings leads, beloved, to gratitude. Fourthly, one last element that I want you to see from this passage that I think we tend to lose sight of is evangelistic prayer. Evangelistic prayer. Persistent prayer, thankful prayer, vigilant prayer, evangelistic prayer. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, praying at the same time for us as well. And here's the petition, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Paul says, as you devote yourselves to persistent, vigilant, thankful prayer, pray for us as well. Who is the us? Himself, Timothy, back, back in chapter 1, verse 1, who is with him, Epaphras, other gospel partners, you say, you say the, the mighty Paul asking for prayer from these Colossian believers? Yes, because he needed prayer as well. Because as someone has put it, even the best men are men at best, right? We're men at best. We need the Lord. So Paul asks for prayer on his behalf and on the behalf of his gospel partners. And what does he ask them to pray for? Notice that God will open it to, up to us a door for the word. Now, again, keep in mind, where is the Apostle Paul right now? In prison, on house arrest. Yes, with certain freedoms, 
but not with the fullness of the freedom that he had before. He could have asked to be freed from imprisonment, and that, if he had the heart right, the, the right heart motivation, that would have been okay, and that would be nice. But instead, notice that he prays that God would open a door for the word. He prays for the progress of the gospel, beloved. You know what? The content of our prayers shows what is ultimately most important to us. It isn't wrong to pray for personal needs. It isn't wrong to pray for our health or the health of others. But if that's the only place that we ever live in our prayers, and all we ever ask for is that God would take away all problems and all sufferings and all trials in our lives, then we are in in a wrong place, beloved. We need to be praying, Lord, what is it that you're trying to teach me in the midst of this? What is it that you want me to learn about you in the midst of the trials and the sufferings that I'm experiencing? In the midst of those afflictions. And look to the greater progress of the gospel. That's what Paul is doing here, beloved. What would we ask for prayer for? What would we petition? Oh, folks, pray. Lord, what are you doing to Paul? Get him out of that prison cell. You really need Paul to to be visiting missionaries and planning other churches. Lord, why are you allowing Paul to suffer this way? Have you fallen asleep? Oh no, Paul is imprisoned. The gospel will be limited now. That's not what Paul wants them to pray. He wants them to pray that the gospel will continue to go forth, beloved. And so he asked for prayer so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which also I have been imprisoned. Back in chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, we saw that, that Paul spoke about his ministry. And when speaking about his ministry, he told us that at the core of his ministry is the proclamation of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The proclamation of the word of God centered on the person of Jesus Christ is Paul's utmost priority, beloved. He wants to see Jesus exalted. He wants to see Jesus made much of. And he knows that his circumstances will lead for the greater progress of the gospel, especially if he responds well to those trials. And others get to see his testimony as he responds to those trials. He had a Christ-exalting perspective. Oh, beloved, I wonder how many of us have Christ as our ultimate priority. We love our bents. We love to emphasize peripheral matters. We love to emphasize secondary things. And before we know it, many of us are talking about secondary peripheral matters, not Jesus Christ. Paul, in the midst of his trials, in the midst of his sufferings, no matter what he sought to go, what he went through, in the power of the Spirit, had a Christ-exalting perspective. He wanted Jesus to be exalted, whether by life or by death, he says in Philippians chapter 1. And he knew that there would be a cost to this preaching of Christ. Notice, he says, for which I have also been imprisoned. He's sitting on house arrest with certain limitations and restrictions. And yet in the midst of that, he understands that the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ has cost him his freedom. And that's okay because God is sovereign. Us too, beloved, expect rejection. Seize upon it. Ostracism, even outright persecution. Preaching Christ and emphasizing Jesus in whatever context you find yourself in, whether it is within your home, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your job environment, will cost you your reputation, will cost you friends, will cost you closeness with certain family members who reject Jesus Christ. It may cost you a promotion that earns you a lot more money than what you're earning right now because they know that you're a believer and you won't do certain things because you're about Jesus first and foremost. It's going to cost you something. Maybe even your life. Like my friend, whom I saw recently, and we were reminded again of a time when he went and did a conference with many people, uh, with a team in in Chiapas, Mexico, where the church was being persecuted in in a village. And at one point, hostile men came and basically locked them into the church building and they were going to burn them to death. And the authorities showed up and delivered them and killed the men. But wow! 
He knew that if he took his family into that environment to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, there would be opposition and potentially they would lose their life. He still did it. I remember a few years ago going with a team to Southeast Asia. And we were, we were um, locked into a room in, at, at an airport in Southeast Asia for two hours. And our passports were taken away from us. And we didn't know what was going to happen, beloved. Because they found out that we were going in to these places to preach the gospel. And carrying in MacArthur study Bibles to give out to the pastors who didn't have st- uh, tools to study. And they found out. Listen, those are extreme cases. But that kind of stuff happens every single day. You understand? Every single day. And of course, on a lesser scale, here in our country, indifference, avoidance, ostracism, loss of a job, rejection from people in our work environments. Even so, beloved, listen to me. Like Paul, we should be praying for open doors for the gospel to be proclaimed in our city, in our country, and all over the world. That the gospel would be proclaimed. That Jesus would be made much of, beloved, in the hearts of spiritually dead dead sinners who need to be quickened so that they have their eyes opened to the beauty of Jesus. I want to ask you this morning, there are some 100,000 plus residents here in Burbank. How often are you individually or do we corporately pray that God would deliver sinners from damnation here in our own city? Do you recognize that 95% or more of Burbank residents don't attend Bible-believing, preaching churches? And the issue, of course, is not to get them into our church building. The reason why they don't want to go to these churches is because of the fact that they're unconverted. Oh, beloved, do our hearts bleed for the unconverted around us? Are we praying for divine appointments? Oh God, Father, help me to seize upon the opportunities that I have in my home, in my neighborhood, wherever I may be in my job, to be a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, to proclaim His name. We must be praying for divine appointments, beloved. That's what mattered to Paul. That the gospel will be proclaimed. And he wanted to be prepared for this. Notice, verse 4, he also asks that they would pray that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. That's an interesting verse. The ESV puts it this way, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. The NIV puts it this way, that pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Here's the second part of the content of the prayer, if you will. Not only does Paul ask them to pray that God may open a door for the word, verse 3, but also that he may be prepared, that he may make it clear. What is the it? The message centered on the mystery of Christ. That he may make it clear. The idea there is to make something visible or manifest. Paul wants to be clear in his message. Some people ask, is, is Paul asking for clarity for, in his speaking? Or is Paul asking for clarity in, in, so that his, his listeners are, are clear in the gospel and they're converted? The answer, beloved, is both. Both. Because on the one hand, those who live in darkness need to see the light of Christ, right? Isn't that what happened to you and happened to me as believers? We kept hearing the message over and over again, publicly and privately, when others kept sharing the gospel with us. Nothing changed, but one day, the Spirit of God worked in your heart, and there was a collision that you had with Jesus, and you saw Jesus like no other time before. For the glorious Lord and Savior that He is. I think He's praying for that as well. Because why would He pray for clarity, to speak with clarity, if nothing happens in the heart of sinners? But also, he wants to preach Christ with boldness and clarity. He says that I may speak, make it clear in the way I ought to speak. He prays for clarity as he presents Christ. I think this is a similar request to what he prays for. He asks for prayer in Ephesians 6.19, where he asks from the Ephesian believers that they would pray that he would be bold to speak forth the mysteries of God. Boldness and clarity. Huh. This is so good, isn't it? I have heard people say many times, believers, you know, brother, it doesn't matter how little you know about the gospel. It doesn't matter how ill-equipped I am. It doesn't matter how little you say or if you stumble over your words when you share the gospel. God can use anything, right? Amen. 
preach it. Yes, God can use even the simplest of gospel presentations. He can. But notice that Paul asked for prayer for himself. That he would be clear and bold as he proclaims the gospel, right? That he would be prepared as well. Beloved, that's not just for Paul. It's for us as well. You and I need to be praying for divine appointments and praying that God may use us with clarity and boldness to seize upon those divine appointments to share the gospel with boldness and clarity. I wonder how many of us can honestly say that we pray evangelistically this way. Or are we so fixated upon our troubles to not look beyond to see how God is using those troubles and those trials for the greater progress of the gospel in our lives and by the testimony of our lives as we respond well to those trials in the lives of others? How evangelistically minded are we in our prayers, beloved? Listen, we all need to be devoted to prayer. We know that, right? We know that. And we can make many excuses. I'm really busy. Really, really busy, Pastor. And yet the, one of the busiest men that ever lived, one of the great reformers, Martin Luther, who did so many things in the history of the church, did so many great works that we are profiting from today, wrote this, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. <laughs> Think about that. He knew the gravity of the things that he was involved in as a reformer. And yet, he knew that he couldn't do it without prayer. Maybe we give the excuse that we serve a lot. And we don't have time to, to pray. We don't have time to sit at the feet of Jesus like Martha, who was running around in, in Luke chapter 10, running around doing, 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 doing. And yet, Mary, her sister, was doing the one thing necessary. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus, feasting upon the person who was before her. Maybe we lack faith. You either don't believe prayer makes a difference or you have seen very little results. I would challenge you, if that's you, to ask yourself, do you see prayer as a means of getting things from God? Is that what that is for you? Just petitioning, asking, asking, asking. God wants us to ask. He commands us to ask. But beloved, first and foremost, it's an act of, of worship before our Heavenly Father. A desire for intimacy with Him that should drive us to our knees. That should drive us to humble dependence. Sheer self-dependence. We are just self-dependent people, beloved. Knowingly and mostly unknowingly, we can live as if we can do things on our own. But I'll give you the, the two reasons that I really believe are the greatest reasons why we are hindered in our prayers. And we lack, perhaps on a deeper level, a lack of desire for God. A lack of desire for His face. And the first one is unrepentant sin in our lives. Unrepentant sin in our lives. This can be personal or this could be relational. J.C. Ryle wrote this, Praying and unrepentant sin will never live in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. On a personal level, I want to ask you, are you holding on to a sin that you're not repenting of? Are you holding on to unknown sin, not unknown to God, but unknown sin, for, uh, sin to before, before others that you need to repent of? Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Sometimes we read those things and we, and we use these disclaimers, right? Well, he doesn't really mean that. I mean, what, is, what does he mean by wickedness? I mean, is he really not going to hear my prayers? If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The scriptures mean something here, right? Psalm 50, 15, verse 1. Oh, Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness. And later on he says, who has not lifted up his soul, his innermost being, to falsehood. Who has not given over to inner, to inner falsehood, deception, a lack of integrity. The Lord will not hear. He desires those who seek to be in his presence, to be walking in faithfulness before him, in holiness. What about relationally? 
Is there somebody that you have not, that, that you are irreconciled with? Is there a broken relationship that is sinful and you're unrepenting of with somebody else? A brother or sister in the Lord, a spouse, a child. Relational unrepentant sin, beloved, can hinder our prayers. That's why Matthew 5, 23 to 24 says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Go. If we want to have closeness with the Lord, beloved, we must deal with our sin. And we're not talking about perfection here, are we? We don't believe in perfection in this life. I understand that. Talking about known, blatant, unrepentant sin that you know and that God, by His Spirit and His Word, has convicted you of. And you know that you need to confess that sin to the Lord and and invite the accountability of other people. You say, well, are we supposed to be confessing our sins? I mean, isn't Christ's righteousness imputed to our account sufficient already? And we shouldn't be having to confess our sins? Well, what about 1 John 1, nine? To believers, if we confess our sins, continually confess our sins, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ's Finished work on the cross on behalf of repentant sinners, beloved, is not the reason we no longer need to confess our sins to the Lord and ask for His forgiveness. Rather, Christ's finished work on our behalf is the ground and basis for when we confess and ask for forgiveness from God Almighty, He will always forgive us because of Christ Jesus. Amen? As believers... The other great hindrance is when we are not rooted in the finished work of Christ. Unrepentant sin and not being rooted in the finished work of Christ. Listen, beloved, we have need to daily be preaching the gospel to ourselves. You know why? Every day I fail. Every day there's affliction. Every day there's attacks internally and externally. Can you identify with that? Yes or no? Maybe I'm the only one that struggles in here. Yes, every day, right? We're weak and frail and vulnerable, beloved. Oh, how we need to remember what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Forgetting what Christ has done will lead us away from the throne rather than drive us to the throne. But when we reflect upon Christ's redemptive work, beloved, we remember that because Jesus was cursed on our behalf and rejected, we can be forgiven and accepted before a holy and righteous God. Amen? We remember when we look upon Jesus that because He took our sins and died in our place, paying for our sins on the cross... We can approach the throne with all boldness and prayer, beloved. We have free access to the Father by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 8.31, for the believer, if God is for you, then who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of the Father. Amen? That's our King, our High Priest. Oh, daily be reminded of that, beloved. In Christ we are secure, and thus we have access to to, to the throne of grace, and we should be boldly confident to enter the inner sanctuary of God. On behalf of the merits of Jesus and not our own merits, because we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Oh, beloved, sinner saved by grace, 
Do you know what the greatest propeller to a vibrant prayer life is in your life? It is to behold the beauty of Christ's person and his work and his merits on your behalf. How beautiful that is. Be reminded of gospel realities, of Jesus, that in him we can confidently approach God. So the life-transforming, finished work of Christ, beloved, is foundational for a vibrant prayer life. And I pray that we would be individuals, believers, and a church who corporately, collectively, is a God-dependent church. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then my brother's going to come up. Oh, Lord, do help us to be a God-dependent people. Help us to seek your face personally and collectively. Oh, Lord, we need you every hour of the day. Help us to remember that because of the finished work of Christ, we have boldness and confident access by faith in Christ to you, to your throne. Oh, Lord, may we seek your face, communion and communication with you. In Christ's name, amen.